Thanks for joining Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast. I'm your host, Corinne. And I'm your host, Brittany. And we work at the National Estuarine Research Reserve, or NEAR, on Sapelo Island, a Georgia barrier island. So last episode, we talked a lot about right whales and about the threats that they're facing. In case you don't remember the whole episode, Corinne has a couple reminders. All right, so one, right whales are really big and their food is really small. Two, within the last 10 years or so, their feeding grounds moved from the Gulf of Maine to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which is a much busier area for ships. And three, ship strikes and entanglement in fishing gear are the number one cause of death for right whales. Right, so in this episode, we wanted to talk about what people are doing to help the whales. Our last guest mentioned that if you're boating this time of year, you should keep an eye out for white whales. So what should you actually look for? Basically, just a dark lump on the water surface. So last time we mentioned that we may have surface active groups of right whales, but that doesn't necessarily mean you'll see a lot of movement, splashing, or activity. Right whales do this thing called logging, where they just look like logs floating at the surface. This can be difficult to notice if you're speeding along in your boat, which is why regulating your speed so you can confidently see in the waters around you can be really important. Even from a distance, you can keep an eye out for their V-shaped blowspout. That's the blast of air and water they shoot out of their twin blowholes when they breathe, right? Exactly. And that they know the names of the whales and that have come back to Georgia. Can you explain how they recognize individual? Absolutely. So if you've ever seen a picture of a right whale or look one up, any whale over about a year old has these white patches on their heads. Those white patches form on callosities, which is basically another name for a callus, like people might get on their feet. What turn those callosities white are the thumbnail-sized crustaceans called cyamids that live on the rough skin. Each whale has a unique pattern of callosities, and those patterns combined with scars or other memorable marks on the whales serve as a fingerprint of sorts to identify individuals. The New England Aquarium actually maintains a North Atlantic right whale catalog that has images of every known right whale. Wow, that catalog contains over 73,000 photograph sightings of over 720 right whales, and some of those photographs date back to 1935. And more recently, researchers are collecting genetic information from every right whale they can. About 80% of the photographed right whales also have genetic information on file. This is helpful because those identified callosities can form after a calf has left its mother. If they separate before callosities form, then scientists may not recognize the calf if they see it again and assume that the calf died, which impacts the numbers. Genetic information clears up this confusion and can tell us important details about their life history, such as how right whale calves develop and how long they are with their mothers. It's really interesting to me that we still have so much to learn about these really massive animals, and yet they're facing huge risks. We've mentioned a couple of times that the biggest risks to right whales are man-made, those boat strikes and entanglement in fishing gear. For the about 350 right whales today, over 80% have been entangled in fishing gear at least once, and about 60% of those have gotten entangled again. Being entangled in a rope may not sound like a big deal to, to a whale the size of a bus, but it can be extremely stressful and damaging. So there's actually a fairly simple activity you can do to test if you could escape from an entanglement. Ooh, interactive. I like it. Okay, what do you do? Okay, so take a rubber band. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you're going to loop one end on the pinky of your left hand. Okay. Then pulling behind your hand, loop it over your thumb. 
Uh-huh, okay. Okay, and then, so rubber bands should be taut and resting on the back of your hand, which you guys can't see, but Corinne's doing this, and low on your pinky and thumb near your lowest knuckle. Right, okay, got it. Now, try to get it off within two minutes. Easy. Without using your other hand, teeth, face, or rubbing it on anything. Oh. Um. Nope. Okay, guess I'm stuck like this. Thanks, Brittany. <laughs> And it's not uncomfortable, just kind of annoying. But for the whales, it's not just an annoyance. With the speed of the whales, their movements trying to get untangled, and different forces on the fishing lines, those ropes can become like saws cutting into the whale. Since it's so stressful, there are teams of people on the Atlantic coast that will search for any reported entanglement for whales to try to remove the rope. This can be very dangerous for the people too, since whales don't understand that the people are trying to help. Our education coordinator, Adam McKinnon, has been out on a little inflatable combat boat in the middle of February trying to disentangle a right whale himself. And it's not that easy. Is it, Adam? No. But it is important work. Each individual whale is important to this species, with less than 350 total individuals left. And any time boats and whales are close together, it can be dangerous. So if you're boating, do not approach a right whale. For one, it's illegal to be within 500 yards of this species. And for two, again, it's dangerous to you and the whale. Boat strikes can be extremely costly, both in terms of loss of life to the whales, but also monetarily to boaters. In 2021, a 54-foot Jarrett Bay yacht struck a mother right whale and killed her calf, causing a total loss for the boat valued at $1.2 million. In 2019 alone, three calves were killed by boat strikes in the southeast. That year, the calves had a 1 in 14 chance of making it to their feeding grounds after being born. Fortunately, some policies are in the works to help protect each and every right whale. Back in 2008, the National Marine Fisheries Service placed a speed restriction on vessels over 65 feet to stay under 10 knots while in important seasonal areas to right whales, like our calving grounds. And in August of 2022, NOAA actually proposed that the speed rule should include vessels over 35 feet. That would include yachts like the Jarrett Bay and other smaller personal watercraft that have killed whales in the southeast. NOAA selected 10 knots because studies show that ships going 10 knots or less reduce the risk of fatal boat strike by 80 to 90 percent. That seems like it would help a lot, since right whales have been in what NOAA calls an unusual mortality event since 2017. These unusual mortality events for marine mammals are strandings that are unexpected, involve a significant die-off of any marine mammal population, and demand immediate response. That response must include reducing the main causes of the mortality event, and for right whales, you know by now, that's vessel strikes and entanglement. Passing the new speed rule would address some boat strikes, but there are also many efforts in place to address the issues of entanglements in fishing gear. Our guest today is involved in some of those efforts. He is the Associate Director at the Brunswick UGA Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant, and a passionate fisherman, Brian Fleck. Brian works directly with local fishermen to help them be successful, understand rules and regulations, and protect wildlife. Thanks for joining us, Brian. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so our largest commercial fishing industry is shrimp uh, here in Georgia. And and this industry, since they use trawls, um, really doesn't have much of an impact on, on right wells. But, you know, obviously, anytime you've got fishing gear that might be in the water, um, that there's always that potential concern. Um, and the industry that we've been working with that does potential have impact is our uh, is the black sea bass pot fishery. Um, and what's interesting about this in the South Atlantic, um, the commercial industry, there's a hook and line uh, industry for uh, black sea bass, which is a popular reef fish um, that we catch off here off our coast of Georgia. But there's also a pot fishery. Um, and this is where they put traps out, um, usually near uh, reef areas is where the black sea bass like to congregate and those traps have an affixed line and buoy to them and obviously this line um, has the potential for for causing entanglement and that is one of the, you know as you guys have said before one of the biggest issues uh, impacting right whales right now so the idea that we're exploring and I say we this is a, an effort among industry researchers managers uh, environmental groups looking at the opportunities of using ropeless or what was also called on-demand gear um, for the black sea bass pot fishery here in the South Atlantic, not only for the protection of right whales, but also to potentially allow expansion of um, commercial fishing for black sea bass, particular during those times of the year when the, the right whales do come down here to calf. And one of the reasons this came about is already in the industry of fishery management um, has seasonal um, and area closures in order to uh, protect uh, right whales and their calves when they come down here. But the industry has noted, you know, in the winter months when the whales are here, um, you tend to, you know, a lot of their prime fishing spots are actually closer to shore. And so that's where those interactions. So because those areas are closed, they have to go further offshore. Um, and this becomes a financial burden and also a safety burden. So, you, you know, you'd have to consider talking about going out into the Atlantic Ocean in the winter months. Um, and so, again, the, the opportunity of potentially utilizing this equipment, um, we're hoping ends up being a win-win uh, for all parties involved. So getting entangled isn't really a big issue in the southeast. The largest entanglement risk for right whales is in the northeast with the huge lobster and crab industries. Typically, those industries use multiple big cages connected with ropes resting on the seafloor with a line attached to a buoy at the water's surface. When whales swim near these buoys, they can easily get entangled in the line. But you're looking into ropeless fishing gear. Can you explain how that works exactly? Sure, no problem. So we're talking about ropeless gear systems or on-demand systems. And one of the first things I tell people, that term ropeless is a little bit of a misnomer because it doesn't mean that there's not necessarily line involved. Um, really, we're, we're talking about the amount of time that the, the line in the water is there. And um, as I said earlier, a traditional black sea bass pot, same thing with a crab pot. You have a, a trap at the, on the seafloor attached to a line that goes up the water column with the buoy on top. With the on-demand system, the gear, the, the um, buoy and the vertical line are actually stored with the trap on the seafloor. Um, so they're all attached. And when the fishermen are ready, um, they will rely on either an acoustic release or a timer mechanism to actually deploy that line and buoy. So the biggest difference is the amount of time. So instead of it being hours or days in the water column, 
that line might only be there for minutes. Um, and the technology itself is a not necessarily new. It's pretty fascinating. Some of the gear types have actually been around for several decades. Um, just they were used in other types of oceanographic or marine uh, uses, not so much for, for commercial fishing. And so it's, it's been interesting um, in the past several years to see some of the different manufacturers coming out there. And I think that's one thing that's really exciting about gear development, kind of all the tinkering going about. Um, NOAA did come out with a, um, a roadmap uh, or a ropeless roadmap. And if you want to know a little bit more about um, how these systems work, um, just provides a, an overview of the different types of gear, at least currently. Um, and just kind of an idea of not only how it works, but from a management aspect, you know, what the intent is um, from the from the fisheries management side. That's really interesting. But this isn't just about protecting right whales. Obviously, that's an important goal. But conservationists realize that fishing is a livelihood. NOAA's 2019 report, Fisheries Economics of the United States, says commercial and recreational fishing provides 1.8 million jobs. You interviewed several commercial fishermen to get an accurate oral history of Georgia's coastal fishery, including the creator of the Georgia Jumper Big Boy Turtle Excluder Device, which reduces bycatch and protects endangered sea turtles from being caught in shrimping nets. A good conservationist should want all of those people to do well, too. What are some of the concerns for the fisheries in using ropeless fishing technology? Sure. You can imagine any time new fishing gear technology is introduced, particularly from a regulatory aspect, you know, there's, there's likely to be pushback and resentment from industry. Um, and we've seen this in the past. Think about turtle excluder devices. I mean, it didn't happen overnight that, you know, that they were in, that automatically people accepted them. There's lots of lawsuits. Um, and, and we've seen this with ropeless gear. Um, you know, I think for the black sea bass pot fishery here in the South Atlantic, there's tremendous opportunities and benefits. Um, but it's important to realize that, you know, new gear doesn't necessarily always mean it's going to be a one size fits all approach. And it might differ based off the industry and the location, um, the people using it, the regulatory um, frameworks. But, you know, some of the main concerns uh, from industry in other parts of the country, one is the cost of the gear. Um, cost for this, the technology continuously is getting improved as, as, as the gear continues to get tested and refined. But you also have to consider the quantities um, that we might be talking about. You know, in the black sea bass pot fishery, we're only talking about around 30 or so endorsement holders between Central East Florida and North Carolina. They're only allowed to have 35 traps uh, per vessel. Whereas, you know, think about maybe up in Maine or New England somewhere where you might have hundreds of fishermen who each have hundreds of traps. Um, that's a huge economic burden. Um, and to be able to switch over all your gear to that, um, you know, there might also be a learning period for that too. And that's something where, you know, fishermen, you know, some might be more willing to, you know, try different approaches. Um, I think this is why it's so important right now with the technology being refined because, you know, particularly, you know, the, the technology associated, you really need to make sure that it's, it's foolproof and, um, you know, easy to not only operate, but you also have to consider um, law enforcement's um, use of it and being able to track gear. So it, I do think it's it, this is one of those situations where, yes, I think there's opportunity and I'd like to be optimistic that, you know, we're going to see the expansion of this gear, but it, it doesn't always just happen overnight. And 
I know when we talk about uh, sustainability, often we, we look at it from an environmental lens, which is absolutely crucial. But when we talk about sustainability of our fisheries, we can't ignore the economic and social components too. And I think you know this is this is exactly what management should be doing. We're we're trying to find um, uh, solutions to issues that are often not uh, easy ones to address. But you, you know you kind of have to take uh, all all sides of this into consideration, and hopefully you find a. a a medium, so to speak, that is gonna that's gonna satisfy all parties involved. So you work on that thin line between conservation and industry a lot with this ropeless fishing gear, turtle extruder devices on shrimp trawls and other projects. Is it challenging to find a happy medium? Wow, is it challenging to find a happy medium? Absolutely. Um, and to be honest, whether it's the issue of right whales or any other coastal topics, I, I think most of the coastal issues that we work on, um, there's going to be that challenge associated with it just because there are so many people involved with the issue. And, you know, they might not always see eye to eye, but I think what's really cool in this particular instance with the ropeless gear and the black sea bass um, pots is. So far, the, the fishermen that I've gotten to interact with and the researchers and the managers, whether it be fisheries or protected species, I feel like there's actually more in common um, about wanting to make this work than, than the differences. And, you know, as I said earlier, this isn't going to happen overnight. Um, even right now, as, as field trials are, are being conducted and they're showing promise in industry so far, what I've heard, you know, they've, they've really seemed to like it for, you know, this application there's still going to have to be a regulatory process or a management plan, you know, put together. And that's not going to happen overnight, but I think making sure we sit down and, and get on the same page of, of what, you know, opportunities and what, what potential challenges are, 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 you know, might still be in the way or are going to be critical and, and coming up with um, a, a solution that ultimately is going to be um, agreeable for everyone. And, and I think that's one thing I love about working in Sea Grant is actually getting to, be part of that group. Um, and I always joke with people, part of my job as an extension agent is, is to bring the thinkers and the tinkers together to, to build a better mousetrap. And I, I, I really think this is something that um, our region should be proud of because I think there's a lot of great opportunity that, um, you know, we have forthcoming on this topic. So excited to see what's, what's coming um, down the road. And I really do think there's a lot of opportunities here to continue protecting our right whales, but also helping to sustain our, our fishing industry. It's great to hear your stories of conservation and industry working together. I think we need more of that in the world today. We really appreciate what you do and for taking the time to speak with us today, Brian. Corinne and Brittany, thank you so much for having me on here. I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I, I appreciate you guys covering this topic. It's really important. Well, now that we've covered a ton about right whales and how to be on the lookout for them, make sure to report any right whale sightings by calling 877-WHALE-HELP or downloading the Whale Alert app on your phone. We'll also share a link in our show notes to a National Fisherman article that gives more information about right whales' road to recovery. Since we have been talking about fishing this episode, Corinne, do you know what music fishermen like to listen to? I don't know. What? A something catchy. <laughs> well, you know why fish are so smart that they're tough to catch, right? No, Why? Because they live in school. No, good one. For more information about any of the topics we covered today, or to submit your question that may be featured in our upcoming episodes, please email us at signer.socials at gmail.com. That's S-I-N-E-R-R dot socials at gmail.com.
Thank you for listening to Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast brought to you by the Sapelo Island National Estuarine Research Reserve. Please check back for more episodes released on the 1st and the 15th of each month. And that's the Sapelo Sound.